Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, or uh, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have uh, come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God, your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice, and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. But I know that this king will not let you go unless compelled by my mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give you this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Word association time. Positive or negative, if I say the word disruption, all of us get something in our minds majority would probably be negative, I would guess. We commonly think of disruption or disruptiveness as a negative thing. You think of like a loss of a job, a breakup of a relationship, a tragedy, a car crash, something that is happening suddenly and changing everything and is often associated with tragic. I mean, it can be like potholes in the road right now or like the train on your morning commute or just even coming here, disrupting flows, disrupting, trying to figure out new ways around and, and longer ways around. 
of course, I live with three, soon to be four, living and breathing disruptions. And I mean, even just I, each Monday, I'm at, at CoCheck, and I saw some of our other members that had kids there this past Monday, and their kids were there, and they're like, and it's so full in here. And I said, yeah, in fact, you should let your kids be really disruptive because there's a little bit higher of a hipster quotient in here than normal on a Monday, and it would really help to tone it down if we just disrupted their work a little bit and had them move on to other pastures. And there, at the same time, there's also a positive sense of disruption. There is um, the whole business world right now is focused on trying to be a disruptive force. If you can be a disruptive business, you have won and will probably be rewarded with billions of dollars. Uh, it's the it's concept of Uber is disruptive to the taxi service. Airbnb has been disruptive to the hotel service. It's changed the way. Netflix has been disruptive to the cable service. I mean, cable is on its last and dying breath and may it die a slow and tragic death because it has painfully been killing everyone with their bills for so long that you're only getting what is fairly handed back to them. But at the end of the day, disruption is a very positive thing if you're playing that kind of game. Of course, disruption can be scary. If you live in this neighborhood or just in the downtown neighborhood, one of the most disruptive things you would hear is a gunshot. It disrupts sound. It disrupts the air. It disrupts a sense of safety, a sense of confidence. It might disrupt your otherwise pleasant sitting on a porch. But regardless of how you see disruption, if you fear disruption, if you thrive on disruption, a fact of life is that we live in a highly disruptive world. And some of that is increasingly heightening. I was talking with a, a friend and, and one of our pastors in our larger church network recently, and he was talking about how there's something in our world that has made us move away from steadfastness. In fact, he was talking about there was another article or something he read that was you know, criticizing the church and our world today for just being pathetic at being steadfast. And it's true. But he said, is it by design of this world that we are not steadfast simply because we are made to be more adaptive than any other generation? You are constantly having to adapt to a new situation, learn a new job, learn a new set of tech, learn a new model, learn a new upgrade. There is a natural sense that a world that you have to be adaptive, and so therefore it necessarily makes you weak at steadfastness. And the truth is, is that the largest disruptive force in this world is actually he who stands outside of this world and created this world. While we may not normally think of the attributes of God and fire off from the hip disruptiveness, I would argue that it is one of his chief attributes and one that is in full display in Exodus 3. God is disruptive when he creates that he looks at darkness and chaos and he disrupts it with creative power, beauty, light. God disrupts in salvation. Every single one of you here that calls yourself a son or daughter of God at one point was full on running after death and Satan and whatever else. You may not have called it that. You may not have even seen it as that. But you were running after your own self-destructive purposes, and God interrupted you to say, no, you're a mine now. 
And of course, as I mentioned, he's disruptive in this story. If you are a, a student of narrative, you'll know that the Exodus story, in so many ways, is the classic hero's journey of setting up the problem, setting up the darkness in chapter one, and then setting up this supposed hero that comes out but yet has some major flaws, has some major downturns, has some major things that is keeping him. In fact, he even attempts to try to be the savior figure, and all he ends up is doing is killing one Egyptian and then getting banished from the country. And he ends up a shepherd in the middle of the desert. And then you have the point in the story where an outside disruptive force steps in. Which is what we have now, rehashing to where we've been. That was a fairly uh, abrupt but complete rehash. And then we have at the end of chapter 2. I mean, just look at how this is written. Verse 23, chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. End of chapter 2, zoomed out to the throne room of God. God is looking down, seeing tragedy upon his people, remembering his covenant and saying, and I know. And you're just like, okay, what's going to happen? It's going to be lightning bolts. It's going to be Zeus time. It's going to be, you know, here comes the punisher. And next verse, I love this. Now Moses was keeping the flock uh, of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And again, if you know storytelling, this is meant to be good storytelling. How does the throne room of God and God looking down on his people relate to little desert shepherd in the middle of nowhere? And of course, it has everything to do with it, and then the story is going to unfold. And it's also worth mentioning that to this point, we noted a few times in our sermons, God has been eerily quiet to this point in the book of Exodus that we see Pharaoh, a maniacal leader, calling for genocide of the Israelites. And yet, everything that seems to be moving in and out, you rarely get even a nod or a mention of God's hand. Until the end of chapter 2 and the beginning in the entirety of chapter 3. God will no longer be quiet in the book. He's through being quiet. Then we read this in verse 2 of 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So a lot of people have always pointed out that one of the reasons that Moses is being spoken to by God is because he was able to notice something that at first appearance was not spectacular at all. Bushes start on fire in dry, arid climates in the middle of nowhere. That happens. But the note note in the point where it says that God saw that he turned to look at the bush, and then he speaks to him, and people say, like, Moses just has this disposition in his heart to turn and to look and to pause and to sit. And not to, like, bring any disparaging comment to Moses, but I actually don't think that's necessarily a little bit what's being communicated, but let me turn it slightly. God has put Moses in such a long period of waiting that he's just finally settled him down. 
and he's just in the middle of nowhere in a desert. I imagine him sitting next to this bush for several hours, guarding his sheep, and all of a sudden noticing this thing is still on fire and not a gram smaller than it was. In this moment, you see an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame, which is interesting. Another thing that you see going on here is God, of course, just taking something simple. Something's on fire, but yet not consuming itself. It's God saying, hey, I can disrupt the natural order. I am that kind of God. And just to be clear, most people think that's how God works primarily, that all miracles are just disruptions of the natural order. I would actually argue that most of the miraculous power of God is seen in him creating, setting forth the natural order, and then it being so regular upon millennia, upon millennia, upon millennia. I mean, the whole book of Proverbs is the Bible's way of saying, hey, there's a way that God made things to work. And when you work and said principles, it miraculously ends with the same common result. And don't kid yourself. That's much more miraculous than anything else. I mean, all of science has often wondered, hey, if there is no God, why is everything not chaotic? Why do things hold together? Because the expectation, the the second law of thermodynamics, that all things tend to fall apart over time, why don't the natural systems and processes and things of this world, yes, they shift, they mutate, they, they ebb and flow, but they don't spin off into chaos. That there's something miraculous about the fact that A plus B equals C, and that's always true. That one plus one is still two. It doesn't wake up and change you don't wake up to a new reality. And so God regularly, I mean, people always, I always love when people are just like, you know, like talking about how God works and they always say stuff like, well, God just doesn't work that way. To which I always want to be like, you know how God works. Believe me, you can have the face mic. You can preach from now on if you have any sense of how God actually works because I have no idea. Sometimes he works completely through natural means. Sometimes he works completely around them. And this is a moment where he's saying, hey, I can work around natural means. In fact, our faith is primarily based on a God who steps in and interrupts. I mean, the whole idea of Jesus on the cross and coming back from the dead is something you can try to explain away every miracle you want. You can go to the flood and be like, could there really be a worldwide flood? You can go to Jonah. Did he actually end up in the belly of a big fish and then was vomited back out? Do you want me to believe those things? I don't know. At the end of the day, I believe a guy died and didn't stay dead. And my whole faith is based on that and that he is the first fruits of the resurrection, and that all who believe in him will follow after him. I mean, if I can believe that, yeah, I can get beyond the fish and the the flood because he can disrupt the natural order. And so we have God disrupting the natural order, and of course, as I mentioned, you get now the angel of the Lord showing up, which is so interesting. You get two characters that show up to Moses, it seems. We get in verse 2, the angel of the Lord shows up in a burning bush. It's actually not God who's described to show up in the burning bush. It's the angel of the Lord. But then it's going to say that God notices that Moses turns to see the bush, and he says, Moses, Moses. Now, there's like three things that people have assumed may be going on here in this moment of what's going on with the angel of the Lord, what's going on with God, which one is which. One of which is that the angel of the Lord is actually Jesus. It's a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. And that he can be both the angel of the Lord and God himself because he is 
fully God, but yet is coming as, I mean, angel literally words means messenger. He's coming as a messenger. And that's ultimately what Jesus came as. In the New Testament, though he comes and does many miracles, though he comes and, and heals many people, he comes and restores creation. At the end of the day, he says, hey, I've come for this reason, so that you might know the Father. I have come to be a messenger and to show what God is like. But I actually don't think that's what's going on. Some people also say, well, this is the angel of the Lord, and he's just speaking on behalf of God. And that's not uncommon, because all throughout the prophets, you see the prophets say, hey, thus is the word of the Lord. And then they speak in first person, I say to you. They so confidently believe they are the mouthpiece of God, they speak in the first person his words. Which again, if they're wrong, they get executed, historically. That could be what's going on. Or it could be, I mean, honestly, this is kind of the most interesting way to think about it, I think. It's like trying to show God's power. It's like God is not going to enter in first. That would be too disruptive. And so first, the angel of the Lord is going to be the one who catches his attention. It's like if you've ever gotten this phone call. How many people have gotten this phone call? This is how you know you're talking to someone way more important than you. You answer the phone. You pick up the phone. And they say, hello, will you please hold for Ms. Brown or whoever? You're like, what? I, I was doing nothing, and you called me, and now I'm holding for you. I mean, it's like the equivalent of, like, someone knocking on your door. And, like, you open it, and they're like, hey, could we just, could we just trade? Can we just shift here and just, you know, and so do you want to come in? <laughs> like, I, I was, what are you doing? Why, why are you coming to me and now asking if I will wait for you? But again, it is the ultimate, I am more important than you. My time is more valuable than yours. And if anyone can rightfully and should rightfully pull that move off, it is the God and the creator of everything coming to Moses and saying, hey, I am not going to blow the doors off of this earth. I'm going to first send in just a small disruption, a miraculous bush that is not consuming itself in my messenger just to catch your attention. And I love, there's commentators that talk about verse four where Moses like just really quickly says, you know, like it says, like that God sees that he turns the side and says to him, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am. And there's commentators that just like laugh at the irreverence of him just like quickly. Like they said, this is such an irreverent phrase in the original language. He's just like, here I am. Like, I mean, I don't know if it's that or Moses just like literally doesn't know what to say. I mean, you're sitting there like staring, like you've been next to this bush for like six hours and it's not burned up. All of a sudden you're staring at it and it says your name twice. It says Moses, Moses. And what are you like, bush? Like, what do you say? <laughs> but regardless, again, God is communicating one clear point as he enters into the story, that he is transcendent. Verses five and six dictate this well. Then he said, do not come near, or another way to translate that is don't come in this place. Don't come here. Take your sandals off your feet for this place on which you're standing is holy ground. Interesting to note, most people think that Moses takes off his sandals, then approaches God, never says that. He says, no, take off your sandals, but stay there. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid 
to look at God. I mean, he's trying to, every single way, try to say to us, Moses, I am transcendent. I am dangerous to you. It's a, even the, I, the choice to come as fire. I mean, think about fire. What is fire? Is it helpful or is it dangerous? And of course, the answer is it depends. Sometimes both at the same time. In fact, always both at the same time. I mean, there's always a point where fire is attractive. It's beautiful. You have candles at weddings, on romantic dinners. It's warm. You can use fire to save your life, to cook food. But at the same time, fire is, ooh, do I have time for this story? Probably not. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> so when my wife and I were in our previous house, which was a rented duplex, one night we find a magazine page back when we had no internet, and this is how we got communicated to about recipes for churros. We're like, we're in. What do we have to do? First thing, you have to boil oil. <laughs> Ominent, right? <laughs> Foreshadowing. You're not supposed to cover boiled oil, we find out, very first-handedly. So we're sitting there and forever, and we're just like, man, this thing doesn't look like it's boiling at all. It's like been like, we've had this oil on the highest open flame for like 20 minutes. It's not even starting to boil. We pick up the lid. Condensation had formed at the top, drips into the oil. Oil plus water plus heat equals <laughs> huge burst of flame now in our kitchen. To which we go, we're like, Okay, uh, like we go through all the things that you're supposed to do. Like we remove the heat. That doesn't help. Uh, it's already transferred now to the pot. And we find baking soda, and we start to try to sprinkle baking soda. That makes it angrier. And we even try to like take the lid and place it on and smother it, which was very hard to maneuver. But of course, we registered for such cheap, horrible pots that it just melts the lid instantly. And everything we do, of course, just makes the flame grow and grow. To which now my wife, in the cool, calm, in-the-moment thinker, grabs the pot with her hand. And immediately, because of the heat, she spills it, oil falling onto her hand. You can still see the third-degree burn scar that exists on her wedding ring hand to this day. And then because of that, she drops the pot. The flames lick up the walls. She runs out of the house just screaming, help us. <laughs> and, and I, in that moment, have the actual thought, what do I grab out of here? Like, there's the classic hypothetical question, right? Of like, if you're in a burning building and all of your loved ones are safe, what do you grab? It's not hypothetical for me. I've had the thought. But before I actually arrive at three concrete items, I noticed that because she has spilled the oil, though it melted the carpet and licked up the walls, that it actually spread enough to begin to cool. The flame slowly dies down to a manageable, kind of cool, coming out of the pot just a little bit. 
I then am able to carefully take the pot out and calm down the contractor who was working on a house the day before who had come over to figure out what was going on with this woman with soot all around her nose screaming help. We rush the emergency room. We deal with all of that. She still has the burn. She has to put silver dean on her hand for like a year, which is actually has pieces of silver in it to start to reheal the skin. She has to keep moving her hand so it doesn't heal in a way that she can no longer move her thumb and her index finger apart. We learn firsthandedly fire is wonderful. And I love, we just kept showing up and over and over again, we had to tell the stories. They always, they always started with like, how did you do this? And it's like, we wanted churros, and <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Fire, amazingly powerful, amazingly dangerous and destructive. And God shows up in that form several times throughout the book of Exodus. Here as a pillar of fire and smoke to lead the Israelites, as thunder and fire and smoke on Mount Sinai as he meets with Moses. He regularly is communing with, uh, communing to us or communicating to us that yes, he's powerful, beautiful, attractive, warmth, light, but yet there's something extremely dangerous to him. I mean, again, all throughout the Bible, you get Things like Isaiah 6, which we read for confession, in which Isaiah comes and is in a vision of the throne room of God and says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he says, I am undone. That literally means I am disintegrating before the presence of a holy God. And then you get one of the stories that always shaped me in huge ways is the death of Uzzah where Uzzah is one of the people who is carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which God has the people create in plans, which he lays out in the book of Exodus. And he has them stroll through the desert and wander. And always the Ark of the Covenant, which is the tangible presence of God, is to go before them and they're to carry it. And at one point they decide to put it on wheels because they're like, well, God's presence is getting a little bit cumbersome. And so they're wheeling it and still walking alongside it. And at one point, one of the wheels hits a pothole because it was in Indianapolis. And they, they were way off of the promised land. This is why they went so far and I had wandered so long. Either way, they hit and it tips. And Uzzah, one of the men standing near, rushes to stop the ark of God from falling on the ground. Seemingly a reverent act. And God strikes him dead immediately. To communicate one thing clear. I am transcendent. I am otherworldly. I am wildly dangerous. One of my favorite songs when I first became a Christian, I listened to almost every single day, was Wedding Dress by Derek Webb. It was in my wedding. It has two swear words in it because I'm that hardcore. (laughs) And at one point he says, I am so easily satisfied by the call of a lover much less wild. And I just had to hear that every single day when I woke up, when I first came to know God, because that was what I just never got. I mean, I just grew up where God was surrounded by knitted crocheted pillows and doilies. And all of a sudden I'm being communicated to, no, God is far more dangerous than all of the little idols, all of the little crazy sin experiments that you think you're running after. And to regularly remind yourself, to regularly, I mean, we have to do this because at the end of the day, our hearts just tend to grow bored, even with the transcendent. I mean, 
show me a person who lives at the foot of the Rocky Mountains in Denver, and I will show you someone who's learned how to ignore the grandeur around them. Eventually, it just becomes a traffic hazard. You can sit next to the beauty of the ocean in San Diego, and there's a local there who's just complaining that their food is cold. I, I read the book Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp, which, man, if, if you're ever in any form of ministry, don't read that book because it blows your life up. And, like, he just talked about the, the most dangerous thing about being in ministry on any level is that you have to daily show up in your nine-to-five and sit before the transcendent God and not lose the sensitivity of heart to that. And you don't have to be in ministry to have that effect. Some of you have been a Christian so long. You come and you do these calls to worship. Oh, nice. Grandeur and Mountain right there. <laughs> it's like I made slides. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> and <laughs> but you have like the moment where like you come before the call to worship, where we're trying to call our minds to the beauty and majesty of God, and you drone on because it's just rhythm and routine. And then you do confession where you confess your sins. And those movements are meant to remind us that there is a huge, stinking, powerful, and dangerous God amongst us that can and has and may strike people dead. And he's very unconcerned if you quote unquote can't believe in a God like that. Because he is in the world of crafting an image concerned of his image. His love is reckless, and we can sing about the beauty of that, and we can also, if we're wise, learn to make our hearts tremble in the awful nature of that. And it's only when you are fully grasping onto the transcendence of God can you actually appreciate the love of God. Because he doesn't need you. He does not need you. He made you, he can destroy you, and he loves you. I mean, that's what makes Jesus a really big deal. That's what makes eminence beautiful. I mean, because it's God like coming in and just being like, I could rightfully destroy everybody. And there's not one person that's like, well, should you, God, would that be ethical? Absolutely. It's ethical to exterminate those who continue to pervert beauty and creation and murder and kill and destroy. And all of us have that blood on our hands. And he shows up as, instead of the enforcer, which he eventually will come as, the first time he shows up as a baby in poverty and walks into earth and heals those who spit in his face. Spit in the transcendent God's face. The fire on a mountain that says, you could die for just being here. People smack him, tear his beard out. And yet, he heals, he calms. I mean, Philippians 2 says he came to be a slave. I mean, only when you hold on to the transcendence of God can you be even close to the amount of flabbergasted you should be when you read John 13 and he picks up a towel and washes his disciples' feet. He cleans crap off of their feet. Because everything we know is power goes up and puts more people beneath it. 
And God is the one situation where he says, no, I turn the pyramid upside down. If anyone wants to be great in my kingdom, you make yourself lower than everyone. If anyone wants to be honored, you come and you follow after me and you make yourself obedient. He made himself obedient to death and execution public. You lose the beauty of that when you lose the transcendence of God. When Jesus just becomes your homeboy. Verse 10. Listen to the eminent language here. Listen to the closeness. Listen to the personalness. He says, come. Oh, no, actually, no, I've got to back up for that. Hold on. Seven, verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have seen who are in Egypt. I have heard and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land, to the good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. I mean, there is no more appropriate verse in the scriptures than the psalm where it says, who is mankind that you should fill your mind with them, God? And that's Moses' response, like, who am I? Because he's looking into the transcendent being. Not directly, of course, that would kill him. And so in that moment, then you get this, I will do, I will do, I will do. And then almost comically in verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Which is interesting because Moses has got to be like saying like, okay, you've seen their problems. You're going to deliver them. You're going to do all this. That's awesome. That's what I wanted to do. In fact, I tried it and failed. How are you going to do that? I'm glad you asked. You are going to go. Like, it's like this classic bait and switch of like the, I've had so much mercy on these people. I'm going to do something powerfully. Therefore, I send you. Because in that moment of, <laughs> speaking of disruptions, <laughs> in that moment of God coming and saying, I'm going to do something powerful, he shows the primary way in which he works, which is through the hands and lives of actual people. Again, we always get there, well, God doesn't work that way. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's very rare that it's like, God, somebody do something about that. And you pray about it and you go to bed and you wake up and front page of the paper that used to come to your door would say, here's what's happened. Instead, it's often a case of we're like, man, somebody should do something. God, do something. And he says, yes, I've seen that. I want to do it. I am doing something. Therefore, I send you that often your vision of what needs to change for the kingdom of God in this world is God's way of working with you to bring about his kingdom in this world. I mean, that's where you, you see, like, man, like, he works through people, and that's a highly inefficient way to go about things. Let's admit that. But God, over and over again, shows that he, his highest value is not efficiency. He has a much higher value with shaping the hearts and lives of his people as he uses them in his plan. And so a couple things to notice about the call of God, because that's a really hot topic. Everyone wants to know, like, how do I sense God's call on my life? A couple things to notice just from the story of Moses. One, the call of God does not necessarily line up with your desires. 
Because Moses at this point had kind of like killed that desire. I mean, it is his deepest desire. At one point, he wanted to see his people freed. But at this point, he just wanted to be on the run and hang out with the sheep in the desert. And yet God comes and says, I send you. I can imagine the next thought is Moses saying, in fact, we see Moses tries to use five ways to get out of it. He is not immediately drawn and smitten with his call. And I'm assuming many of you actually have received a call from God and you want it to be something else. But God persistently says, no, this is what I have for you. You can run from it, but it will be here. I mean, people all the time, like, just, like, pretend like it's only your desire. Again, desire is a part of it. Like, Moses' deepest desire is that people would go free, that his people would go free. God is actually removing some of the lesser desires to wake him back up to his deepest desire. But it's not purely just, I mean, all the time, I remember I had a friend in college that's just like, man, I just feel really called to move to Denver, Colorado. Like, of course, we all feel called to move to Denver, Colorado. Gosh, like, if, like, cost is not an object, heck yeah. Like, I never once heard the person that's like, I feel really called to move to rural Kansas. Because I'd be like, do you have family there? And they're like, no, I just, I just feel called. Then you should go. That's probably from God. <laughs> so it's not directly equal with our desires. It's also not directly related to our preparedness, readiness, or natural attributes. Again, it's not always against those things. I mean, God set Moses up in the palace of Egypt. He learned the language. He learned the ins and outs of the palace. I mean, he had a specific and unique way that God had prepared him. But the real preparation, as we talked about last week, actually starts in the 40 years from him killing one of the Egyptians to him having this moment with God. 40 years go by where God is in the process of actually preparing his heart. Because, I mean, someone once said this to me, and it's, one that, it's something that my wife has held on and said back to me many times when I feel like things just aren't working the way I thought they were, or I really can't do this, or I feel really inadequate to do the next thing on my to-do list. She will regularly repeat the words that were said to us when we started this whole shebang with going into ministry and doing church planning. She'll say, and we were told, hey, God doesn't call the prepared, he prepares the called your preparation and your calling might be going and growing simultaneously. For the person who always says, like, I just don't feel ready to do that yet, you never feel ready. You never feel ready to do hard things. You do hard things, and that's what makes you ready. Because, again, that's a lot of what God starts to use to actually shape you, shape us. I mean, there's points where Moses, again, goes as a fugitive, goes as a foreigner, lives for 40 years in the middle of nowhere, and God is all the while shaping a humble and obedient and submissive heart, one that would eventually look at this fire long enough so that God could speak to him. I'm, I'm moved by the words of Henry Nouwen, who has one of the best quotes on leadership of all time, where he says, the great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. I was talking with a friend and a member of this church recently, and we were just talking about him, you know, shepherding people in his missional community and shepherding people in 
church and everything and just like you know talking to him about like you know hey like you know with all these shepherding desires do you have like desires to like lead in a formal way like even an elder, elder of the church in some way to like shepherd and care you know you and your wife and your family together and he said like yeah like i'm happy to entertain that but truth be told the last five years have beaten out of me every desire to have any sort of t- title or recognition that's why it's really I've talked with many people recently, really important to have elders having, being over the age of 30, which is tough to find in our congregation. <laughs> because there's just something about that time of life where you start to realize, like, I am mortal. I am on the descend. And it's going to continue to pick up speed. And I feel like I have less time and less resources than what's being demanded of me. And I feel really weak and really broken and just really had the trash kicked out of me a thousand times. And that's, that's a person who can pick up a towel and wash crap off of people's feet as they spit on them. That's someone who's been prepared. And that's not just true of eldership. That's true of anything, anyone who would want to walk forward and minister to people in the kingdom of God. You are getting the trash kicked out of you because God is preparing you. He's not doing it out of some sense of sadistic, let's watch how much they revel and writhe under the magnifying glass. He is preparing your heart to minister to his children. In order to do that, you have to be able to go lower than anyone else. In order to do that, you have to be more humble than anyone else. You have to be willing to suffocate for the sake of somebody else getting out of the water. literally, but at times maybe. And so if you're, if you're someone here and you're just like, man, life keeps throwing the curveballs. Where is God? He very much so might be preparing you. In fact, I would recommend, I would submit that everyone in this room should expect that to come at some point. You can go to another church where they'll tell you something different. It will still come. And that's not God letting go of you. That's being transcendent, eminent, and actually being very close to you in that moment. Gosh, I got to end. Just uh, to conclude that point, to say something positive about call, because I've only said negative things at this point. And not just like positive and negative, like I've only made negative assertions. Here's a positive assertion. Call is seeing something that the kingdom of God needs to break into this world and just being willing to do it. Again, I was talking with a pastor who said, you know, like you want to know who I look for, the leaders of the church. They're the ones who are constantly seeing the least attractive needs and fulfilling them. Because that's call. A lot of times I don't want to. But I see it and I'm willing to do it. Or maybe God is making me willing to do it. We'll end in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt, and you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Good idea, Moses. Who am I? Doesn't matter. I will be with you. Okay, then who are you? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, 
Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Don't have time to do all the little Hebrew grammar of what God's doing there. But ultimately, this is where we get the term Yahweh, which is not what God would have said. He would have said Echweh or Echweh, which literally means I am. Yahweh means he is who he is. And God says, hey, do you want to identify who I am? You want my personal name? You want to know who I am? I am always who I am. I mean, your point, like you're saying, like, tell him I am who I am has sent me. Okay, thanks. Not helpful. Um, But it is very helpful when you think about God as saying, no, I am always who I am. God is always who he is. So when you say that God is love, he is always love. When you say God is merciful, compassionate, righteous, strong, wild, dangerous, he is always these things at all times. People are sometimes what we are. You find that out when you get married. You find out, you can describe all the things that they are, and then you get married and you find out they are sometimes what they are. God is always what he is, which is the crazy ironic twist to this whole disruptive language. God is by definition the most disruptive thing to our world, but the way he disrupts our world is by being completely steadfast in an ever-changing world. I mean, our world is constantly half-lifing the amount of time that we change all technology and paradigms of what we believe. I mean, there's beliefs that have gone in and out of vogue in a decade. But yet God says in the midst of all that, I am always me. I am always steadfast. I am always present. And in the midst of like getting vertigo from a changing world, I am me and I am always here and I am always present. I am always consistent. And the most beautiful thing is he says, and I will be with you. And he always is. When life feels sideways, when you're praising God out of a natural overflow of the abundance of your heart, when he's preparing you or when he's prepared and moving you out in mission. There's a folk tale or possibly an actual narrative of a indigenous people group that used to have a passing of manhood ceremony by taking their sons and having their sons go out into the wilderness naked and without any way to protect themselves and spend a night in the wilderness. Of course, this is a place where like lions and snakes are just the norm. And they would take them and they'd put them out in the middle of nowhere. And after this moment, after this night, should they survive, they're welcomed as a full and deserving man in the tribe and given all of the privileges that come with that title in their culture. But they say that though boys would go into this night often kicking and screaming to not be left out there and be deserted in darkness, they would usually find themselves at some point in the morning curled up at the base of a tree because it's the only place to get protection. And as the sun slowly comes up, they would eventually look up to the sky and see in the branches their own father standing, armed, protecting them. Because they're never alone. They're never trusted to take on 
all of the brutality and the pain and the weight of sin and their own pain and their own broken world on their own. Their father is watching them. He's holding their lives together. He is always there. And so as you come forward to take communion for the believer in the room, communion for me is sometimes just a weekly reminder of God is with me today. And he was with me last week, and he'll be with me for this week, and he's going to be with me for the week after that. And in an ever-changing world where sometimes I can't figure out which way is up, nothing is more true than he is who he is, and he is with me. He is who he is, and Christian, he is with you. If you're not a Christian, there is no sense of us saying like, well, he won't be with you, because good news, he is the classic disruptor, and he may be just disrupting your life right now. And if he is, we'd love to pray with you, talk with you, and then after that, yeah, come forward and join in the family meal and remind yourself, that this isn't just one random moment on a Sunday in March. This is something that is true for now all of eternity. Let's pray. Father God, I pray to you who you are who you are. You always will be what you are. And in a world where we are very much so realizing that people are not who they are and we are not who we are behind closed doors. We pray and thank 